Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, as always, Kerry Parker. And this week we have part two of our fascinating interview with Ernesto Falcone from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We'll be talking about solutions to the broadband access problem, the high-speed internet access problem in this country. And if you have not caught part one, you definitely want to go back and check that out first. There's a lot of setup stuff there and a lot of things we talk about there before we talk about some very interesting solutions today and some things I actually had not thought, thought about. It's not, well, as you'll find out, it's it's not necessarily something that the private sector needs to solve by itself or that the government needs to solve by itself. There are ways that we can kind of have them work together and that there's some uh, interesting op- options that will come up. So anyway, I won't give too much else away. But this has become an extremely important topic during this COVID-19 era. You know, not having internet access prior to this was already a problem for certain socioeconomic classes or certain geographical locations. Uh, but now that we're all being forced to work from home and to learn from home, not having internet access means you basically can't do, probably can't do either one of those things. So it's it's quite literally never been more important than it is today. So it's a very timely, uh, very timely topic. And I, I found, especially the second part of the interview, just very, very interesting. I really like some of the back and forth we had and some of the ideas that were batted around and some of the really interesting facts that Ernesto brought up. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get to part two of my interview with Ernesto Falcone. This is infrastructure. This is national infrastructure. And we're going to talk a little bit about this later in terms of what that might mean policy-wise here, but... I mean, it sounds like the, basically what you're saying is the government, some of these other governments, uh, I don't know if it's, uh, maybe you can answer if it's strictly government-based or if it's per, pu- public-private partnership kind of thing, but they have made a, uh, a point of expanding this stuff because they realized, just like highways were to us, right, when we laid out the highway system, that really enabled us as a country to grow very fast and probably fueled the Industrial Revolution. And, and so this is the same kind of digital infrastructure that kind of is analogous to that, wouldn't you say? Yes, I would say that's right. I think the the way to think about it is um, it it takes an all of the above approach. You know, we have you can you, you private sector competition works really well in a lot of parts of the the country because what you need is kind of enough people at congregated in, in enough in a small enough space to allow you know enough enough right. buyers of a service sure. to to finance those those networks. So San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City that's easily. A, yeah easily can have lots of competition, lots of options. Then it just starts becoming a very different story when you get further out there because you just have fewer people who could finance the construction in terms of paying, you know, paying monthly mm-hmm. bills and things like that. Then then, you know, the public sector and the public the public interest approach to these issues uh, make much more sense because if I'm looking at an area and it's it's say it takes me two decades to recover the investment that's like exactly what the government's for. I and mean, the government's right. job is to look at those things and say, okay, the, that's fine because we, we will be here forever, you know, in terms of <laughs> as an institution. We're not looking at, you know, folding or merging with another company or trying to sell ourselves or anything like that, right? Quarterly um, business reports, yeah. Yeah, they don't have to, uh, you know, their their goal is much more broader and, and focused on, you know, the public good. And, um, you know, clearly the the way government money is spent out there is is, is essential. Now I will say what's what's been an interesting transition lately, and and we're having this fight in California as well right now, is um, so much of government money has been spent not on fiber, and so because it hasn't been prioritizing fiber, you still have this situation of like you've you've subsidized some sort of broadband access or internet access in an area, now it's kind of useless, and now you, what do you do again? You're gonna have to mm-hmm. come back and and either trying to increase the speeds there, 
by pushing fiber closer to it or or simply just replace it with fiber. And, and we would argue at EFF, uh, the time has come to just let's just be fiber from the get-go. There's no reason to do any sort of legacy plussing mm-hmm. up at this point. So because of the weird monopolistic situations we have in the kind of the, the laissez-faire government regulations and the you know free market kind of fetishizing we, we tend to do in the United States, there's been a lot of markets that have just been underserved or, and probably overcharged. Um, and so some of them have taken matters into their own hands. And I, I talked to us where that's kind of what we're here to talk about somewhat today. So when did that kind of, when did that trend start? What was like the, who was the first state or municipality to say, okay, enough's enough. We're just going to do this ourselves. I don't know if I top my head which one's the first first, but I can't say I know who the first gigabit city was, and that that was Chattanooga, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Oh, okay. They actually were a gigabit fiber network before Google Fiber came to came to <laughs> to the story, uh, not by a long not by a long period of time, but you know like six months. But still, you know people look at Google as the the most innovative thing in the world, and and you know lo and behold, a tiny middle sized city in Tennessee was actually building building what Google Fiber already was trying. That then kicked off a whole bunch of state. You know, basically, the, the cable lobby saw the writing on the wall. Their mm. engineers know the same things I'm saying now, which is, yeah, we have cable. It's faster than what the DSL companies can do. It's going to cost them way more money to keep up with us. And so long as no one else comes in with fiber to the home, we're going to be the one the one monopoly standing uh, in terms of high speed access. And and so it scared the hell out of them when Chattanooga <laughs> decided, you know what, we're just going to finance our own build, and and they did it. You know, they kind of reveal a lot of the financials here. One being, you know, at 18,000 people when they were serving, I think, close to 50,000 households, it was profitable. You know, you don't mm-hmm. actually need 100% subscribers. You just need enough to cross-subsidize and finance the whole build. And and once you get rolling and you keep adding more people, your profits are just growing, uh, you know, faster and faster. So they went to the American Legisl- Legislative Exchange Council, mm-hmm. which is kind of this, like, industry shop that oh, yeah. hands, out, hands out bills to state legislators. Yep. Uh, because the fear for them wasn't so much losing one city uh, in in a random part of the country, but it was what was going to come next when Chattanooga was done wiring Chattanooga. They were like, okay, well, we're making a ton of money building out to our own city. Why don't we just use that money to keep building out to all the surrounding mm-hmm. cities next and then surround those cities? Mm-hmm. So they were just going to expand and expand until they eventually covered the whole state. And that was unacceptable to the cable lobby. <laughs> so they got a bunch of states to pass laws that banned municipalities from building broadband knowing full well that the financials are sound it's a great investment it's going to pay itself off over the long run and it'll continue to feed an expansion sure. of a network that that's an essential service that everyone needs all right so <laughs> unpack that for me how in the world given the the facts that you just laid out yeah. were these cable companies able to convince states to outlaw this practice when they know that there are cities and this happened in north carolina uh, there were there the, the the story I think I read in the paper in North Carolina was there was a, there was a particular community it wasn't a you know it was kind of a small sized city but you know not a not a village that where there just wasn't decent broadband and for people that couldn't get it at their homes there were kids that were like the, the parents would drive their kids up to a McDonald's sit in the parking lot just so they could get their Wi-Fi because they couldn't get it at home so yep. how in the world did these how in the world did they manage to get these laws passed that made it illegal to compete. So here's the here's the most interesting thing about it, um, and I think the Utah story and that and that story is happening now, um, and I want to really like flag the the Institute for Local Self Reliance. They do a phenomenal job of popularizing these stories in their podcast series as well, and and doing a lot of direct interviews of mayors who like took the plunge. But 
what I would say the early years, what cable had the advantage of was uh, you had Google Fiber uh, bidding to all sorts of cities to, to build out. You had um, you still had some basic parity between cable modems and DSL uh, because you, you weren't in the hundreds range yet and you weren't in the gigabit, certainly weren't in the gigabit era uh, nationally anywhere. And and quickly convincing legislatures, if you allow cities to do this, they're gonna, it's going to dry up investment. We, we won't be able to build uh-huh. and and it's going to be a boondoggle left and right because they don't know how to run these networks. <laughs> So, you know, that convinces enough conservative legislators as well as a lot of uh, of Democratic legislators who, you know, who take money from these companies, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, I, the, the money from the – in terms of contribution sites, huge. It's prolific. And to them, it's like, okay, well, you know what? My people have options. You know, I've got – I see this Google company doing stuff. I see at least two options in most places, and that seems pretty good on price without any sort of recognition of, of how much how much they were trading in uh, for that. And what's changed that, because, you know, states are trying to roll these laws back. There's still, I think, about 19 out there, if I remember right. But they're they're constantly under assault because the, the truth of the private industry is not going to invest in those areas still remains true in 2020. And it's harder to make the argument of we're just around the corner like they did back in their days when they passed these laws. And the Utah story, I think, is really is really informative about this because Utah still has a ban on cities building their own broadband service today but the 11 cities decided okay well if we can't sell broadband why don't we just build the fiber wires and let someone else sell the broadband service Mm. instead of us and so you have like (laughs) you have about a dozen isps selling gigabit to 10 gigabit services over an open access fiber build that's a joint infrastructure plan of these 11 Uh. cities and you know, on the early months of it, you know, they the cable lobby went to the legislature to try and kill it outright and try to prevent that from expanding. And, you know, they, they weren't able to do it fast enough because by the time, you know, they, they, since they couldn't get it done quickly, what it naturally ended up happening is enough senators and enough assembly members, I, I think it's assembly for Utah, but, you know, the, the, the system in terms of the legislature, enough of them started having constituents and they themselves get access to this stuff. And mm-hmm. they suddenly realized hey, like, this is awesome. You know, I'm paying <laughs> 40 bucks to 60 bucks a month for a gigabit service when my Comcast folks are caught in charging me two to 300 times, you know, percent that number mm. for, for a vastly inferior right. alternative. Like, you know, and so what you, what you have is a growing chorus of supporters building into the legislature corresponding with the network itself being spun out and reaching more and more parts. So now I think... They're they're always worried about being challenged in terms of like a litigation to try and kill them and stuff like that. But you know, politically, it's it's very difficult for cable to unwind the the, the genie in the bottle that's sure. got out there. And so the article actually that that, that uh, made me think about this and had me reach out to you is about something going on in California right now in this in this regard. What tell me what's going on there? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So, um, so EFF has a sponsored bill with Senator Lena Gonzalez. She's a senator from uh, in the Los Angeles area. And, um, you know, we've been working at this for a while, but but it's finally been, you know, we had a couple of threshold issues to handle first. One was a couple of years ago, we had to have the fight for net neutrality at the state level. And following that, the next big step for us was, um, you know, kind of restoring the power of the state regulator in the sense of um, if you don't have an FCC regulating these companies, then the state needs to be doing the mm-hmm. job on its own. And, you know, here's the crazy thing. In 2012, and California, the ISPs convinced the California legislature to deregulate broadband. 
under the premise that, you know, this FCC is regulating us. You don't need two regulators uh, causing confusion or duplication. Mm-hmm. You know, you trust this Obama presidency, don't you? You know, in terms of a de- you know, Democratic legislature. Right. So, sure, they did, of course. And then what happens, you know, what happens is, you know, Trump wins. Mm. They then flip the, the equation and say, oh, hey, like we don't need federal regulation anymore. And mm. all of the arguments of we don't need state regulation because you have federal regulation just sort of right. vanished. So we were able to restore the California Public Utility Commission's authority over broadband companies. And not, that was in, that that restoration started January 1st, 2020. So now we are now, you know, the, their first job really is public safety. Uh, they're looking at the fact that lines were disconnected and service was dropping during the middle of the, the mm, fire yeah, right. fire state emergencies. Right. You know, and obviously Verizon throttling the firefighters and people remember this <laughs> yes. story. Oh, yeah. You know, Verizon throttled these, the Santa Clara Fire Department folks uh, in the middle of the state emergency. You know, that was a huge wake up call because then they're like, wait, what can we do? We're not allowed to do anything about that, you know, as a, as a state government entity. And so. You know, Governor Newsom, I think, was was definitely committed to preserving the right to do something about that if it happens again, mm-hmm. which means he needed his regulator to be fully empowered. So now the question is, the financing programs the government has in the state, um, are they doing the correct job? And, you know, here, here's a bit of the tragedy in, in, in this one. 2017, so it was about a year before EFF really got involved in the telecom fight at the state of California. You know, the ISPs convinced the legislature to adopt a, a an Internet access uh, funding program that made a, a handful of really kind of egregious errors. One, um, any market that has six megabits download, one megabit upload. So a third of mm. the federal definition of mm-hmm. broadband, which existed for two years already at that point, uh, would be considered served. And you don't need the state mm. to get involved in financing infrastructure there. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, and and if any and in any bidder right so if I'm a bidder in terms of applying for state money to build the network you know a matching grant or or some sort of other financial help any incumbent who can show a six one connection exists in that area can knock the bid out um, so a very friendly challenging process with an extremely low standard but it was really focused on DSL and so you know who's the company that benefit the absolute most from that is Frontier Frontier has the DSL monopoly for a whole bunch of areas. And and they don't even you know they don't even have cable competition for crying out loud. Mm. And so you know you have company you know local governments and small ISPs trying to build uh, fiber networks there, and Frontier is showing like oh I have a DSL line in that area you know take that take that application out. Wow. So you know hundreds of millions of dollars have been asked for from this program, and only about thirty million dollars has been spent so far in the last three years. Oh wow. You know we have about five hundred million dollars of requests. Uh, not all of it meritorious, and I say that in the sense of you know Charter and Frontier both are asking for I think a collective total of 100 million plus of state money to build uh, at completely at the state's dime, right? With zero investment from their end, um, you know, upgrading their networks. And I'm just like, okay, that's just that's just ridiculous, <laughs> right? Ridiculous on its face. But you know that like they can do that because no one else can uh, can bid in those areas because they've structured the program to you know allow the DSL monopoly to be the barrier to to uh, applying for funding. And um, when you do that, when you make it where it's 6-1 instead of broadband, at least, 25-3, what you've effectively done is, you know, from our estimate with the, with the numbers, you know, 1.5 million Californians who don't have broadband access, they have internet access, like mm-hmm. they have some sort of interconnection, but not broadband, are, are in territories that are ineligible for state financing. And when you, when you take that many people out of the equation, you're left with this weird Swiss cheese effect of 
you know, a few hundred households in this corner of a county, uh, mm. 10 or 12 households in this corner, they have nothing. Uh, and everyone in between has only DSL, so it's not, but it's not broadband, but I can't do anything with that. Hmm. And so if I was trying to put a project together, I can't rationalize the construction in a way that says, I will build one network that covers this territory from right. end to end. Uh, instead, I have to build you know a, a handful of houses here and then spend all this money to kind of hmm. connect my network across and avoid right. trying to capture invest in, investments from the local community. And then, and then connect a few households over there. So, you know, a lot of these construction bids are, are exceedingly high um, because they can't benefit from scale or aggregation whatsoever. Gotcha. All right. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, the impacts of this, the social and the, even the democratic imp- in, impacts of this. And I'm sure EFF has looked at this as part of their rationale for what are the things, some of the things they're um, advocating. So what do we know uh, in, in modern society? You know, what are the effects of having ready access to broadband versus not having it yeah it's uh it's dramatic you know so the electronic frontier foundation we've existed for 30 years and our premise when we came into existence uh in the 90s you know at the kind of the advent of commercialization of the internet has been as technology grows and and our and these devices become more part of our life that the basic rights and freedoms that we've always had uh in an analog you know unconnected world uh remain the same that we don't diminish them and you know, if if not remain the same, get stronger. And broadband access is definitely, and it has been here for a while, quite a while, to be to be frank. But you know, it is clear if you if you do not have access to a 21st century ready connection, your access to the internet is is substantially curtailed, and you're you're a second class citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you cannot participate in in a whole wealth of of services and applications that that you know make life easier and 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 more affordable uh, from telehealth to, you know, the remote education that we're dealing with now of COVID-19 yeah, as well as remote work, as well as um, you know, all of the advantages that are, that are to come with, with kind of the next set of, of cloud computing, um, you know, advancements. Uh, these are things that are all out of your reach uh, simply because you don't have, you just don't have the infrastructure to make use of it. And so, you know, what I like to call, and this is, um, this came up in an interview between Wired and, and Susan Crawford, who was a, a professor at Harvard who wrote, who writes great stuff on on fiber optics and things of that nature, but uh, there's a speed chasm, right? There's a speed chasm mm-hmm. between legacy networks who have their limits, uh, who are not going to get faster, and uh, fiber, and that speed chasm will be a new the new kind of digital divide. Even if we get if we if we get everyone connected with basic internet access, it's not going to solve the issue because it'll be just replaced by a new kind of digital divide, which will be the speed chasm. Well, and you mentioned, you know, the whole COVID-19 stuff, which, you know, now that we're all sheltering at home, there's this is really exacerbated and brought to light a lot of these inequities and, and, and underserved populations that we're seeing. And, uh, you know, even our, you know, our school system, which is in a pretty affluent neighborhood, you know, the middle, upper middle class kind of neighborhoods, you know, they were, they were wondering how they were going to telelearn all the kids because there were still some in remote communities that did have, that had no access or insufficient access. Yep. And uh, and then, of course, remote working, too. I mean, I'm really lucky to be one of the people who have a, has a profession where I can effectively and productively work from home. Right. But if I didn't have broadband, I couldn't. <laughs> you know, yeah. so yeah, this is, this has got to be bringing a lot of this stuff to the fore, I would think. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think that's why we were, we're you know, we were at the first step of many in the California legislative process. But I think the recognition that it's it's an essential service that's more essential now than ever before. And if we are not um, if we are not building towards the future, uh, the future is going to over, overcome us. And the 
you know, here's the thing that COVID-19 is, is, is for people to really understand. Yes, Internet usage has grown up by, you know, say, 20, 30, 40 percent. The reality is that that's what normal Internet usage was, is going to look like in a few years anyway. Right. And so to the extent that we are seeing huge inequities and inequality in access right now, we have the sneak peek preview that COVID-19 has allowed us to see to begin thinking out of how to how to rectify this to the future. You know, and that takes a long term infrastructure plan purely focused on high capacity fiber. And that is, again, a great segue into what to me is the elephant in the room. And it's something we've been kind of dancing around so far in this thing. And that why why isn't this a public utility? Why in the Internet today, the modern day life, I would say certainly is analogous to you know, the Postal Service or highways and water and electricity. You know, why why shouldn't we at this point treat it more like a public utility? And if we if we did, if we assume that premise, how would how would that work? What would that look like? So I think the open access build is, is a piece of that of that puzzle in that um, you know, we finally have a network infrastructure and we've had it for a long time, we just, we don't have it built out everywhere, but we have a network infrastructure that can be built and opened and used by dozens of players mm-hmm. all simultaneously. And you didn't really have that with cable and, and you didn't quite have that with, with DSL uh, and copper. And so, you know, we have an opportunity to rethink these things of rather than rely on a handful of national private companies who who are going to cherry pick where they're going to build and have right. already decided where they're going to go. You know, there's no mystery here, except for the most head in the sand, um, you know, <laughs> politician. But you know, there is no reason why we can't rely more heavily on our local governments. But I I also say the small private entities out there have been you know taking a step back. The big difference is if you're subject to investor expectations and quarterly reporting and all that, your behavior is very different. Oh, but sure. if you're a, a small family held business. Or, or a small local business of a, of a, a few dozen or a hundred plus employees that live in the community, you're okay. You're ready to take on those challenges. You're ready to take on, you know, this this ten year effort to to modernize and build a new uh, a new internet, if you will. And you know, that's the story of North Dakota. North Dakota is a, is is actually on par with with even the most advanced EU nations in hmm. fiber to home deployment, which is crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> Because uh, it's North Dakota, right? It's a tiny rural <laughs> state. And, yeah, nothing um, against North you know, Dakota, but it's kind of sparse. Yeah, yeah. I'm, my uh, my old roommate lives in North Dakota. He and I game. Uh, we game online, and and he's never had a problem because he you know he has a fiber line. And um, you know what it is is this combination of of several several small local held businesses and lo- and lots of local governments building out the infrastructure themselves. There is no major national player that that made that happen in North Dakota. Well, and I think the idea that you talked about is really interesting, and it might, it might, you know, I've been wondering this myself prior to this interview, like in many discussions over drinks with friends you know, who disagree with my public utility stance on some of this stuff. Is that, you know, a lot of people think, okay, great, last thing we need is the government. You know, I'm here, I'm like, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. The classic Ronald Reagan sure. slogan, right? Uh, and you know, if the governments are inefficient, they'll, they'll never get anything done. There's all this graft, there's all this inefficiency. So why would, why on earth would we want the government to do this? But it sounds like, I mean, I think it's really interesting that you're talking about, and again, I go back to the analogy of the highways, you know, if the, you know, the government gets together and lays the plant, they, they, they kind of get together. They, they don't have to worry about, you know, long-term or short-term profit worries with shareholders and quarterly reports. Uh, they can spend the money and then they would, instead of running the thing, they would turn around and lease that to the private companies on top of that. And that, that seems like a perfect thing. And because with, like with highways, the analogy to me is like, we built yep. the highways, but now look, look at all the, look at all the services and, and companies that are using that uh, and it, it have enabled them to, like UPS, you know, yep. Federal yep. Express, uh, yep. trucking companies. Without if the if the country had not laid those highways down, those things would have been impossible. 
Exactly right. Exactly right. And no private company was going to take on that cost uh, on their own to build that roadway infrastructure. And so, you know, it, it's enabled things like Amazon today, right? Like right. It, it, these are things that uh, don't exist unless the government makes the investment to allow the the commerce to follow. And and I think that's exactly how I, I think about fiber infrastructure and fiber access is, you know, they're going to be they're going to be places where you, you could rely on the private market to handle most of the challenge. But even in the, the biggest cities, you still have a need for government policy. And, and usually it's meant to curtail the the desire to avoid um, the most challenging parts of the city. Uh, and that's almost always the low income areas, uh, the areas that have uh, fewer people who have less money on hand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. A private company is interested in skipping that because they'd right. rather go to where they can maximize their profits. Law and policy should counter has to counteract that. And, it, and it's not detrimental because um, networks are about aggregation. It's about the total number of customers you're able to cover over your construction vet is should should be the thing you think about or should be what policy prioritizes, like helping finances and profits and all that. When we allow them to slice and dice the market and say, well, this one household costs this much and this other household costs this mm-hmm. much. It allows them to escape the the truth that if they actually covered all the houses, they would make plenty of money and and they would be a perfectly profitable venture. Well, the other thing I heard recently that I thought was really kind of mind blowing was that you know people again they, a lot of you know we've we've gotten to the where we really like to beat up on a lot of government services and we we you know talk about the bad things to do but it you know the the example that was given in this interview I heard was okay let's let's say we come up with a vaccine let's say we, or, or a test or something something related to COVID-19 that's absolutely essential it's very cheap but the government could provide it we need to get it to every single American how would we do that well guess what you need the highways a yep b you need the postal service it's the only service anything yep. in, the, in this country that is guaranteed by law because that's the way the government set it up that they must be able to deliver to every American in the country even you know even the Federal Express and UPS and Amazon those a lot of them are using postal service for that last mile because they yep. don't want to service those those areas so if without the government infrastructure that it would have gone it'd be impossible well and I think what's what's really important for people to understand is you know let's look at things based on proven models. You know, as I mentioned earlier, of South Korea, like South Korea is number one because of its government. Mm-hmm. It's not number one because it had like the more innovative Korea Telecom, you know, entity. Uh, it's because there's been an active government effort to make sure that infrastructure get, got to where it is today. And to the extent that we think there's a proven model that uh, the government's absence results in universal, competitive, affordable networks. That doesn't exist on planet Earth. Uh, <laughs> I, I have no country. I have no country I can point to that, that has proven that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have dozens of countries that prove the opposite is true, which is you know South Korea. I think on the top of the list. All right. So as we're wrapping up here, tell us what what kind of things that we've talked about. What's going on right now in California, Utah, and other places? Where like get your crystal ball out. What do you what do you see happening in the next three to five years in this space? What what are the what are the possible ways this could go? And what's 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 coming up on the horizon? So, you know, the election's a big deal in in terms of, like, how policy gets made. But I think there's a growing recognition, regardless of which political party is running the process, because you look at what the Federal Communications Commission is doing now with the Rules of Development Opportunity Fund. So this is, like, the the, the current existing money that's out there. It's about $20 billion. That's a big deal. Mm. It's, not all, it's not enough, but it's a big deal in the sense of it makes progress, a, a pretty substantial amount of progress. Uh, in a lot of places, and it's and one of the key decisions that the FCC made, which I was I was worried they weren't going to make, but they did. A lot of the wireless companies were, you know, I think probably driven by AT&T primarily, who were saying you should allow wireless to count for your high capacity mm-hmm. networks in 
in the markets you're trying to deploy. And the FCC said no. It has to be fixed wire, you know, fixed wire, fixed mm-hmm. wireline services, uh, which means fiber. And so by I think there's a recognition that if they really want to prove 5G can be everywhere, they have to be building fiber everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, now that the conservative side of the the aisle, I think is is at that point. Um, then it's just about money. Who, how much money we're willing to spend to do it, uh, which is a better argument than whether we should spend money, any money at all. On the other side, House Democratic leadership has, you know, committed to a, a recovery package under COVID, you know, in response to COVID and the kind of the economic downturn, um, and they very clearly intend to build to pass an infrastructure bill that that would actually just finish, just do a national transition, right? A, a full-fledged national effort of fiber everywhere. Uh, you know, that's that's probably in the ballpark of 80 billion dollars. Mm. And absent the fact that we just spent two point two trillion dollars to stay afloat. <laughs> right. You know, like 80 billion doesn't sound so much anymore, especially right. if it means a useful asset for for not just myself, but for my kids and my kids kids. Right. You know, it's a good investment. It's a phenomenal investment. And and we have to do it if we want to keep pace with China and, and other ma- major nations out there. So, you know, whenever the Congress uh, in the presidency, whether it's this president or if there's a change of presidencies, right? As soon as the stars align for that infrastructure recovery package dynamic, because uh, it's not there yet, mm-hmm. right? There's still a lot of debate and and mm-hmm. and back and forth in Congress. But the moment the stars align, this will be a big priority for a lot of people, uh, uh, both I think on the Republican and Democratic side, as it should be, as it should be. And the opposition will be cable, right? Then they'll oh, yeah. have to overcome. Comcast, who who wants to preserve their their perpetual monopoly until someone else builds fiber, and um, you it'll be interesting to see where the AT and T Verizon's of the world go because they don't intend to build fiber everywhere, and if someone else builds it, they can just pay them the capacity to do their five G plan, and so will they be as staunchly opposed as they have been historically? I don't know, they could be, but. I do see I do see a very difference in in the industry. Part of it is they have to acknowledge that they are not they themselves are no longer compete with cable, mm. uh, which they'll never admit because the moment <laughs> they admit that, then the realities of monopoly are too right, obvious. Right. <laughs> but um, they can always they can always not be the 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 barrier to to moving out on this stuff. So we'll we'll see. And and if you know and if Congress puts out that money with the right kind of conditions. You know, I think it'll spur forth a whole dozen, you know, dozens upon hundreds of small businesses and local governments getting into the game of broadband, which will be transformative. Absolutely. Okay, one more question, then I will let you go. So, uh, yeah, one, one specific one, Jarek. So, uh, General, if if I happen to be in a community that I believe is being underserved, uh, what can I do to make that known or, or try to get some change there? And then, of course, just generally for the rest of the audience, if I believe this is a cause I want to get involved in, what what might I do to stay involved and to make uh, make a, a dent in this? So on the, uh, you know, the first piece, I think, is convincing your local elected leadership, so your mayor and your city manager, that they should look at what other cities are doing because lots of different rural cooperatives and, and mid-sized cities are building their own fiber. Uh, and it's working really well. If uh, and, and a lot of times it's in partnership with with a local small business ISP. So mm-hmm. you know, local governments just have to have to really catch on and just accept that no one's coming. Uh, <laughs> and if they are, if they don't do it, if they don't, if they don't set the conditions to allow it to happen themselves, uh, it won't happen. And then I think in the broader scheme of things, um, you know, EFF has its blog, and we we activate uh, activism on the national as well as the state level on these issues. 
so f- feel free to go to eff.org and follow um, you know follow our blog on on these issues of broadband access. Uh, I publish some you know fairly regularly on different issues. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the state of California in particular, you know help us on SB 1130. Uh, SB 1130 is Senator Lena Gonzalez's bill. It would convert the state's infrastructure program that is you know kind of obsolete and you know hindered from ISP amendments from a few years ago. Uh, and really turn into a full-fledged fiber infrastructure universal program. And uh, once we have the program, then it's just about getting enough money into it over time to to get it done. Well, Ernesto, thank you so much for coming back to the show. These discussions are always so interesting to me and so fascinating, and, and we've learned a lot today. So thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, always love being on and always like the invite. I really, really enjoyed that interview. Uh, big thanks again to Ernesto Falcone for coming back on the show. Always great to have him. And again, just a, a really important and timely topic. I would also like to say that, you know, right now we're going through a lot of stuff. It's not just the COVID-19 now. Now we're having, you know, protests and even riots, uh, not just around the country, but around the world. And frankly, here in America, it's it's really testing our, uh, our constitutional rights. But one aspect of this is... Uh, that you know you might not have thought about though it has come up some in the news is privacy and that is because during all these protests law enforcement and and even the federal government have really cranked up their surveillance uh, in kind of creepy ways so uh, we'll be talking about that probably next week when I do a news show and after that we've got another really big two-part interview my first ever interview with two people at one time uh, and this will be Adam Levin from Cyber Scout who we've talked to before he's the founder and head of Cyber Scout but then we're also bringing on his uh, chief privacy officer, Edward Goodman. And as you could expect, <laughs> a bunch of people geeking out about privacy and security stuff. We talked it on and on, and that's really very interesting, though. So uh, look for that two-parter to come up after next week's new show. And that'll do it for this week. So as always, and even, even more so, it, <laughs> it just keeps getting worse. Please, everybody out there, stay safe, stay healthy, stay home when you can. Be kind to your fellow man. Maybe find some ways to support those in need. So until next week. Don't get caught with your garbage down.